The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Exodus chapter 26. This evening we continue our study of the tabernacle and it is our privilege to open up God's word once again and to research the reasons that God put these things in his holy word and preserved them all of these centuries for us to read. And I often emphasize that every part of God's word is important for us to know. Uh, Some parts are not as important as others, or at least we may not understand the importance of them or why they may not be as important as others. Uh, We do understand, though, the Bible is complicated. The Bible is, with its doctrines, are, are very tightly interwoven, and I'm not sure that we'll know until we get to heaven why all of these scriptures were put in here for us to know. But uh, we'll try as much as we can to see what God has for us to learn. And I mentioned in an earlier lesson that some don't recognize the types of Christ that we find in the tabernacle. They will agree on major issues such as certain sacrifices that are made. They agree with typology of sacrifices, but they don't see what we see in many of the finer details. And uh, I love this study because I grew up with it. I'm convinced that there are magnificent pictures of Christ that are found in every part of the tabernacle's construction and worship. We approached the tabernacle uh, some weeks ago by looking at the beautiful white linen fence that surrounded it. And we made mention that this fence was a barrier uh, to those that were outside. And it symbolized the righteousness of Christ that is necessary for every person to have before they can have a relationship with God, we are barred by the righteousness of Christ. If we don't have that, then we can't come. And if I could pause on that point for just a moment, at the end of this past November, there was one of the daily articles in Table Talk magazine, and most of you know that I read Table Talk every day. And this was an article about the obedience of Christ and... uh, Reading, reading Table Talk there, there are often some very, very good theological gems that are found there. And you don't often find something that's written on this particular subject, and that's why I think the Table Talk devotional is so far better than most. But this was an article that was written on the obedience of Christ, and it briefly explained the difference between Christ's passive obedience and his active obedience. And uh, many people don't understand that, what you're even talking about when you say passive obedience versus Christ active obedience. The passive obedience is the death of the cross. That is, Christ surrendered to the death of the cross. He was led, as the word of God says, as a lamb to the slaughter. So the passive obedience of Christ is what others did to him. They crucified him on the cross. But when we talk about the active obedience of Christ, it's not what was done to him, but what Christ did himself. It it was that Christ was actively busy about doing the Father's work. He was always doing the Father's will. And it was in his active obedience that he earned righteousness that he could impute to believers for their justification. So this article was making the point about this, a very good article, 
And the point made was that the active obedience of Christ was just as much necessary as his passive obedience in the death of the cross. That without Christ's obedience to the law, then his death would have only put us back into the place where Adam was. And that is, Adam didn't have imputed righteousness. When he was created, he wasn't created with imputed righteousness. He only had a a duty to obey God and to maintain his righteousness, he had to keep God's law. But when Adam failed to obey God, there wasn't any righteousness for him to fall back on. He couldn't come into the presence of God without any righteousness. And so after his fall with, without a state of innocence, he wasn't positively righteous. There wasn't anything that he could do in his flesh that would please God because all of his best efforts were tainted with his new, new depravity that he had just incurred by sinning against God. So this white linen fence that surrounded the tabernacle is, is actually emblematic of that part of Christ's obedience, the active obedience of Christ. It's a, it's a positive righteousness that's necessary before we can be accepted by God. And it's righteousness that comes only by a perfect being, because only a perfect being can be positively righteous. And so to be satisfied, or rather to be justified, I should say, in the eyes of God, we must have this righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. Now, we find that teaching in the New Testament, in all of its clarity, in places like Romans and Galatians. There we find that we're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by being law keepers. But we're saved because Christ kept the law. He kept it for us. And then he gave us his righteousness. And that comes to us through faith as the instrument. But what we don't see is that active obedience of Christ as clearly in the tabernacle worship or Old Testament because it isn't explained in the same terms that we see it in Romans and in Galatians. So this is one of the reasons uh, we often say that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And when we read the New Testament, we find things like the saints that are in heaven and it says things like they are clothed in white. And so we're reminded when we read that, that heaven was the a pattern the, for the tabernacle. The, the, pattern, the tabernacle is made after things that are in heaven. And when you look at it this way, this is the way that you pull typology out of the scriptures. And so what you have to do is you have to take time to look and you must investigate everything and then you can come to the purpose for the details. God never does anything without purpose. And I think most of the time God's purpose is this one major one. And that is to reveal his son Jesus Christ. And he reveals Christ in ways that we could never imagine unless we can clue in on the infinite wisdom of God. Now I know that I might be a little bit off track with this part of the discussion, but it struck me as I, as I was studying this that it's like Jesus when he was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus wondered, how can a person be born again? I mean, he didn't really understand all this thing about the new birth. How could a man be born of the Spirit of God? Jesus asked a question. He said, how, how can you, being a teacher in Israel, not know this? You, you are supposed to be a teacher. These things are in the Scriptures. How can you not know this? And what Jesus referred to was written in the Old Testament when it said in places like Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
and renew a right spirit within me. It's in another place, for instance, Ezekiel 36, verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now there, there, Psalms and Ezekiel, that's written hundreds of years before this term was ever used, born again. And yet we find it in the, in the Old Testament scriptures and we have the benefit of the New Testament to explain it, which is a benefit Old Testament Israelites didn't have. So whether the Old Testament Israelites understood this whole thing about typology and what they were, what they were doing, even though they couldn't understand all the pictures, what we don't want to do is brush all of that away and say that it doesn't exist because they didn't know that it existed. The New Testament begins to tell us when we get into it uh, about why these things are in the Old Testament. Well, going on on the subject, this white linen fence, uh, we, we looked at that and we went through the linen fence in the, uh, by the gate of the opening. And we made mention that this gate, the opening, stands for Jesus Christ, who is the only way that we come into God's presence, that Christ is the only door of salvation. So he, as he said in the New Testament, is the only way that we can reach God. And then just after passing through the gate, now I'm just reviewing some typology with you here, that after passing through the gate, there is the brazen altar. Sacrifices are made on the altar, and these are both the sweet savor and the non-sweet savor offerings. And we won't go into those offerings because we spent months talking about them. But I will say that the offerings that most people are familiar with are the non-sweet savor offerings. Even though they may not know the term, the ones that they are familiar with are the non-sweet savor offerings. And of course, you had to learn those terms too when we studied that portion of the scripture. But they're, they're more familiar with those because the non-sweet savor offerings picture the death of Christ in, uh, for trespasses and sin... And that the altar is the place of God's judgment upon sin. And of course, who is the one through which sin is judged? Well, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He took the believer's sins upon him. So the brass of the altar then symbolized judgment upon Christ as our sin bearer. And our judgment that should have been ours fell on him. The altar also stood for the cross where God poured out his unmitigated wrath on his son as he hung there bleeding and dying for the sins of all who believe. And then looking at the altar, the fire on the altar is like the fire of hell. And Christ went through, uh, through hell. He suffered infinitely the punishment of all who would believe in him. He suffered as our substitute and equivalent amount that we would have to suffer if we were to go to hell to be punished for our sins. Then after passing the brazen labor, or brazen altar rather, there is the brazen labor. That's what we learned in the last lesson. And it was a place of purification. Uh, the labor was made from the polished brass mirrors of the women. It symbolized the word of God and it is, the word of God is a mirror that reflects our sinfulness and the need for cleansing. And so priest, the priest would come and wash often in this labor as they went about their business of service, uh, making sacrifices was bloody, dirty work, and so often they had to go to the labor because they couldn't enter the tabernacle without cleansing. And we looked at that type as the priest needed to be cleansed, so we also need to be cleansed. 
any person that desires fellowship with God must be washed first from the corruption of his sin. And that's what happens when we're justified by faith. That's what changes our legal disposition before God. But looking at the brazen labor, we also learn that it's more of a picture of our sanctification than it is our justification. Uh, sanctification is a change in our moral condition. And so we often have to come to, uh, to the labor, so to speak, for repentance and washing from our daily sins because we live in the defilement of this world. God will never use dirty vessels, and so we need to continually ask for forgiveness of daily sins. Then this, the, the courtyard, the altar, and, and the brazen labor just get, keep us getting closer and closer to the structure of the tabernacle itself. And it is an amazing building. It's constructed with many more wonderful pictures of Christ. But before we move on to get into the, on the inside, we, we've got to take some time to look at how it was built. There, there are details conceived in the mind of God that represented many, many important aspects of Christ and his salvation. That's all inside the tabernacle. But before we get there, there are so many more that we find also in the construction of the building. Many of you, of course, are, are familiar with construction. Uh, some of you might have worked in construction. Uh, in, this, in these past years, we've had some very talented construction people in the church. You look around our building here, and this was all remodeled right out of the people that attended our church. We had three very important people in that, two of them mostly on, on this part of the building. Uh, one was Grant Evans, who was a uh, lifetime builder in Santa Rosa. Now we have a conference room that's named after him. He did the major work of remodeling this room. Then another was Les Crandall, and uh, we're working on another room that we're going to name after Les, or give as a memorial to him as he helped to work on this building. And then there was a third, you remember who that was, that was Larry Jefferson. And although we haven't yet named a room or part of the building after him, uh, he has the distinction of being named Deacon Emeritus, the only one that we ever gave that title in all the history of the church. Not even sure that we could count that as a biblical title of any source because the Bible, of any sort rather, because the Bible doesn't actually say there's such a thing as a deacon emeritus. But that's what we did to, to honor him when he had to retire from, from being a deacon. But whether you're in the construction trade, you do understand this, that any building must stand upon a firm foundation. That a building is only as durable and dependable as the foundation on which it stands. And so this afternoon, this is the part that I want to speak with you about. We'll get started into this about the foundation. And it stands for the firm foundation upon which our salvation rests. Now our text, if you have your Bibles open, is Leviticus chapter 26. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 26. And we want to start at verse number 15. And thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of Shittim wood standing up. Now, I want to I stop right here with this, with this part. Uh, I want to pause here because we have some obvious awkwardness with this word Shittim. Um, so from now on, we're going to change that to, as the modern versions do, and use the modern word for that, and as the word acacia. So we're going to speak of acacia wood. Later in another message, we'll talk about the significance of acacia wood and why that was used. 
But for now, I think it's best that we would use the modern term as new translations do. I remember when my when my dad preached on these texts so long in the tabernacle, he would he would change the word not to acacia, but he would say kittim instead of this word. And uh, I've heard other preachers that make changes in words because of obvious embarrassment about uh, the word that's used in the King James. And I remember, this is a little bit funny to me, I, I think I'll just give you a little story here. I remember Pastor Cregan, that uh, when he would read the scriptures, uh, uh, he would never, he didn't like, <laughs> he was, he was uh, uh, um, sensitive to the word breast. And so he would never use the word breast. He was always changed it to chest. And so the funny part about it is when we would go out to eat, he would always, uh, if we were having chicken, he would order a chicken chest. Um, and here at our dinners here, uh, when we would have chicken, you know, he'd say he'd look for a chicken chest. And that, that's what he had. I think you can be sensitive to things. That might be just a little bit, uh, a little bit overblown. I don't know. And then I think of my, my sister's pastor, uh, when he would read Numbers twenty two twenty one, that reads, uh, Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. He would never say that. Uh, he would say Adam saddled his donkey. But enough of that. You understand what I mean. Uh, language changes. And so when we look at the King James Version, we've got to be aware of that and make changes where necessary that might be a little bit more comfortable now going back to our text let's let's fix things here uh, Exodus 26 verse 15 and thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing up ten cubits shall be the length of a board and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth of one board two tenons shall there be in one board set in order one against another thus shalt thou make for all the boards of the tabernacle and thou shalt make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side southward. And thou shalt make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under one board for his two tenons, and two sockets under another board for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, there shall be twenty boards. And there, forty sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. And for the sides of the tabernacle westward, thou shalt make six boards, and two boards shalt thou make for the corners of the tabernacle in the two sides. And they shall be coupled together beneath, and they shall be coupled together above the head of it unto one ring. Thus shall it be for them both, they shall be for the two corners. And they shall be eight boards, and their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. Now if I could show you this picture of the tabernacle, this is the tabernacle without its coverings. And you notice when we, we have called it a tent and tabernacle actually means tent, but we're not talking here about a pole tent and uh, it's not an, an air, uh, what do you call that, a, a, a compressed air tent where you blow it up in those, uh, of those types of the larger tents that you see today. It's not that type of a tent, but it's a tent that actually has a structure underneath of it. And here you see the boards and the bars that run along the length of those boards. And that keeps all of this, keeps the uh, tabernacle stable. So what you have then is these, this, this tabernacle is uh, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, two compartments that are in it. 
the first compartment is the holy place that is 30 feet by 15 feet. And then behind that is the holy of holies, which is a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And that is separated by the veil. Now, the framework of the tabernacle was wooden boards that are covered with gold. We're going to talk about those later. And on top of this, there are four coverings not seen here. And that makes the completed structure with its wood and gold and fabrics and all that was used to make it very, very heavy. And for the structure to stand, each of these boards rested on two foundation sockets or two foundation pieces that are called sockets. And there are 100 of these sockets that are made of silver and each socket weighed nearly 100 pounds so that the weight of the, just the, the foundation itself was about five tons. Now in our picture you see boards that are covered with gold at the bottom. I, I don't know how well you can see it, but there's a silver color at the bottom. And these are the sockets that we're talking about that the board sat on. So you have 48 of these boards that stand on end. 20 are on the north side, 20 are on the south side. There are eight on the west end. And each of these boards have two protrusions in the bottom that are called tenons. And these tenons slid into the sockets of silver. And so they were sort of wedged in there so that each board is resting on two sockets. And then four sockets are used to support the pillars that hold up the inner veil. So the tenons on the bottom of the boards, they, they snap down into those silver sockets to keep the boards from shifting backwards and forwards. So what we're looking at here is pretty much a huge erector set. This is the prototype for Legos or something like that. Uh, but with all of these boards in place, with them locked down into the tenons and then with the heavy coverings that were on top, there was no danger of the tabernacle collapsing or of uh, strong winds blowing it over. So it's a very sturdy structure. So you see that wisdom of God's design of having this, these boards under the, the coverings and, and the very heavy silver sockets that anchored the tabernacle down. Otherwise, you would have the desert winds that would blow it away and, and uh, would, would cause it to fall over, be destroyed. Some of you probably have a, may have a tent and you may at some time have experienced your tent blowing away in a very heavy wind. And that's because it's not heavy enough to be anchored. So that's the purpose of all of this. So you have a building then that sits on a foundation that is made of five tons of silver. And it is these, these sockets of silver that we want to talk about. Now you remember when we went over, we had that long list of, uh, different items that are in the tabernacle and the typology that they stand for, you remember that silver stands for redemption. And this silver, uh, to make, to make this, this foundation, was made or was taken rather from the redemption money that was paid by the people. So we're going to talk about that for just a minute. If you'll take your, take your Bible there and turn to the 30th chapter, we want to read about the offering of silver that was taken and how it was taken, how much was taken, and from whom it was taken. These are all very important. Exodus 30 and in verse number 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. 
this they shall give, everyone that passeth among them that are numbered, half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary, a shekel is twenty geras, a half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. Everyone that passeth among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for your souls. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for your souls. Now, I'll show you the next picture we have. This is a picture of people that are bringing their silver to Moses. Now, you'll, you'll notice that there is a, a woman in the center of that picture. There's a child that appears to be dropping a, um, a silver coin on that pile. And that's not quite right uh, if, if this picture is intended to show that every person in Israel brought silver because they didn't. And let's explain that. The tabernacle rested on silver taken in this offering. And that silver stands that stands for, uh, or it is a picture that, that everything that Christ is to the believers is dependent upon redemption. Everything that we have to do in relationship to Christ is dependent on what he did in redemption. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this is what Christ did on the cross. He paid a redemption price that bought our souls for God. So that God is satisfied, God is atoned with the, fret, with the, uh, with the purchase price, and that makes Christ's death, or we can even say his blood, the medium of exchange for the payment of the sins of all who believe. Now this tells us that Jesus did not come to this earth to be a moral example. That's not his purpose, not purely a moral example. And as you know, we've discussed that some in, past, in the past, especially in the forum class, about the moral theory of the atonement. That's not what Christ did. He didn't come to be a moral example, but he came to give his life in order to purchase salvation. And he accomplished that by his death on the cross. So we're going to take the few minutes that we have left and, and, and do an, uh, just a, as much as we can an examination of this beautiful picture, the tabernacle standing upon the price of redemption. Now first then we note the amount of redemption. God gave specific instructions about how much was to be given and by whom it was given. And so when the call went out to gather this redemption money, God let every person know they had a responsibility to him that in order to be numbered with the children of Israel, this is a requirement. Redemption money must be paid. But we note in the, in the scriptures that it doesn't say anything about the women paying this price and not the children, but it tells us here that it was paid by the men. So this is paid by every man. In verse number 12, the scripture says, when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. Now there's your cue back there. It's for every man. There we go. So the demand 
for ransom and for redemption was made upon all adult males numbered among the children of Israel and verse 14 says it's those that are 20 years old and above that paid this and so we have an approximate number of how many people in Israel brought the price of redemption and we say well how do we know that how can we tell well you remember that the number of men that were 20 years old and up was given to us this is in numbers 1 verse 46 Starting in verse 44, it says, These are those that were numbered, which Moses and Aaron numbered, and of the princes of Israel, being twelve men, each one was for the house of his fathers. So were all those that were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers, from twenty years old and upward, all that were able to go forth to war in Israel, even all they that were numbered were six hundred thousand and three thousand and five hundred and fifty. So the ones that are able to go to war, it says, are to bring this offering. And um, there must have been others not able to go to war. They would also be required to bring an offering. And that would bring the number of people somewhere upwards above 603,550 that would give their offering. And that was enough to supply plenty to have five tons of silver to make this foundation. Now, some people would look at this and when you start adding up the weight of all this silver and you would think, well, that, that's an impossible thing. How, how could they have gathered so much silver? There can't possibly be that much. But then you look at the pool of the number of people that have to bring an offering and you can see it all adds up very quickly. And then it makes you think again about how the Israelites plundered the Egyptians that they had enough Enough was given to them that they borrowed from the Egyptians that every man in Israel that was able to go to war is able to bring this, this offering of silver. So it's required of every man that's 20 years old and above. And without this offering, they can't live in the camp of Israel. Every, everyone must participate in this. And if they didn't furnish the silver, it meant that they would be cut off and then they would die the death of a plague. Now, a moment ago, I spoke of Christ's active obedience to his Father. This means that Jesus kept all of the laws of God perfectly. That would include the Ten Commandments that were etched on tables of stone. And it would also include every ceremonial law for worship that is given in Scripture. Now, to show you how this, how this plays out in the life of Christ, that he also obeyed all ceremonial laws... I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. And here we find a most interesting account of Christ's obedience to God's law. The account begins in verse number 24. You'll recognize it as we read it. Matthew 17, verse number 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Now, just, just uh, I'll pause there for just a minute, that word prevented. You remember when we looked at that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Those that are alive and remain shall not prevent them which are asleep. And we talked about how this word prevent means to precede. Well, here in this particular verse, 
Jesus knew what was on Peter's mind before he ever came into the house. So he prevented him. Before Peter could even tell him what everything was about here, Jesus comes up with this question that Peter just experienced by talking to these, um, these people that come and ask about whether Jesus paid tribute money. So Jesus already anticipates that. He knows everything, doesn't he? So Jesus prevented him saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them for me and thee. Now the question asked to Peter was, does your master pay tribute? Tribute refers to the temple tax. It's the very same thing that we're talking about here in in our scripture in Exodus chapter 26 and in Exodus chapter 30. This is the redemption price that is paid for the people that all are required to bring. So the question is, why was Jesus required to bring tribute and did he pay tribute? I mean, after all, you would think, well, here here we're talking about the king of creation. Who is there that he could possibly pay tribute to? Two, kings don't pay tribute. They require tribute of their subjects, neither do their children pay tribute. The king doesn't require it of his own children. That's what this whole discussion is about there in Matthew 17. Now the point then is if Jesus paid the temple tax, it would be the same as if he paid it to himself. Because Jesus is the temple, so to speak. He is the temple of God just like the tabernacle is representative of Christ. So why did Jesus pay this temple tax? Is it because he's in need of redemption? Well, he answers the question he, as to why he did it. He paid it so as not to be an offense. The Jews were always looking for reasons to condemn him. Uh, at this point, he's not ready to establish the kingdom. And so to offend the Jews would help them to discredit him. The Jews would say, oh, well, he doesn't obey the, the laws of Moses. How can you follow him? He's, he's a lawbreaker. And in fact, you know, they often did accuse him of that unjustly. But you also remember in Scripture there are multiple times that Jesus did certain things to fulfill the law. And so you'll read, he did this, and he did this, and he did this other thing over here. And it says, he did this so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. So there is no God-given law that was on the book, so to speak, that Jesus didn't do. Does your master pay tribute? Well, yes, he did pay tribute because that's a part of the law. Must he pay tribute? No, not, not in relation to redemption, but yes, he must pay it according to the law. So in his flesh, Christ in the flesh, Jesus in the flesh, must pay this tax or be an offense. And if that's the case... Jesus would not be holy, harmless, and undefiled. Now we look at the story and we consider where this money came from. Jesus told Peter to go to the sea. And he says, throw out a hook, catch a fish, and the very first fish that you catch, open his mouth, and in it there will be a piece of money. I'm not going to go into the language of all that, but I can just tell you the word that is used here for the money is the exact amount needed to pay a half shekel for him and a half shekel for Peter. 
Of course, that's all a miracle. It's a, it's a miracle. It's the first fish that Peter took out that he looked into to find this money. So, you know, you think of it this way. If he cast out a net, there would be many fish in the net. And Jesus said, well, the first fish of money fish that you pick up, that's the one that will have the coin in it. And that's a miracle on so many levels because Jesus says the first fish means there must be other fish. So Peter would not look into several fish and say, not this one, not this one, not that one. Oh, here it is. It's in the 15th fish. No, Jesus made sure not the first fish that you catch, that's going to be the one with the coin in it. So not only is it a fish with a coin in it, God knew, Jesus knew exactly which fish that Peter would pick among several that he could have chosen. He picked the one with the coin in it. Now, you look at that and you say, can you possibly imagine that God is not wise enough to choose the people that are his? You mean he chooses insignificant fish, but he can't choose humans? He doesn't know? He, he doesn't choose the exact ones who will come to him? Let me tell you, just as Jesus puts a coin in a fish's mouth, he puts the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person that he wants to come to him in repentance and faith. He's in control of all of that. Didn't we just read that a few minutes ago in the scriptures where God says, I will put a new spirit in you, a new heart I will put in you. I will do it, not you, not any more than Peter put a coin in the fish's mouth. Well, that's not all we have to learn here. So let's go back to um, Israel once again. Uh, I mentioned just a moment ago about plundering the Egyptians. And didn't we discover that in the wisdom of God, that God had a plan of finance in place before the I Israelites even knew that they would need it, before they even knew that God was going to build a tabernacle, before they even knew that they had to have all these materials prepared, God already had a plan for that. All the materials he required were there. So if Peter then wondered, where, where are we going to get this, this money to pay the tax? We don't have money to pay the tax. Well, Peter didn't need to worry. God can give money out of the mouth of a fish if he wants to. So think about this, folks. When God asks you to give something in faith, then why are you worried where it's going to come from? Why are you worried when God says, well, you need to give your tithes and your offerings? Why are you worried where it comes from? God supplies everything that he asks for. You just depend upon him. Now, going back to our text, all the males must bring redemption money. The inclusion of all the adult males was to teach that all men are sinners, that all stand in need of redemption. Well, I'm sure you would ask. Aren't women sinners too? Well, the women never ask that. But men are very much convinced that it is certainly true. Um, some of you men have lumps on your heads and you just say, yes, ma'am, whatever you say, ma'am. Some of you sit in the back seat, don't you, Jorge? And you're very much convinced that women are sinners. So sure, women are sinners. They are cruel taskmasters. So why don't women have to pay redemption money? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think first, for all the grief that we like to give women, it was Adam who was responsible for his wife, and God blamed him, not her. The creational principle is that man is the head of the house, 
And man is responsible. And all of you men with lumps on your head, you need to learn that. <laughs> men, you are responsible for your family, so take charge and be a man. Now, I think the second reason, and maybe a little more seriously here, has to do with the way that the sin nature is transmitted. The sin nature comes through the man. It's the father who passes the sin nature to his children, just as we receive the sin nature from Adam, not from Eve. And, of course, as we've learned in many, many Christmas sermons and dealing with the incarnation, that Jesus was born of a virgin, born of the seed of the woman, so that the sin nature wouldn't pass to him. So this all figures into this. Does Jesus need to pay redemption money? No, because he doesn't have a sin nature. He never sinned because he doesn't have a sin nature. Now, there were over 600,000 men in Israel, 20 years old and above. And I think what it shows us, this number 20 years old, shows us accountability. That all must pay. It tells us also that all of them are depraved. All of them have a sin nature. All of them need redemption. And here is just a, another scripture that we add on top of all the other places that we find in the Bible that describe this fact that man is sick, it's, uh, sinful, that, that we are wicked, we have wicked hearts. It teaches the total depravity of man. And the numbers of places it's found is just too, too numerous to mention. Now the fact that, that God demanded all of them pay clearly shows that no, no matter how good that one of these men thinks that he is, he's still a sinner in God's eyes. He has no righteousness of his own. He has no holiness that will make him acceptable to God. And he must have the righteousness of Christ. He must have Christ pay his sin debt. So what we're talking about here is, is the same problem that Adam had. There is no positive righteousness. Once he sinned, what's he going to do? There's no way to get righteousness. And so it has to be given by another. It must come to him from outside. That's what we call, in fact, an alien righteousness. It's not inherent. It belongs and it comes from something that's outside. Now, as you look at all the world's religions, there is no plan like this in any of them. There is no religion but Christianity that says that atonement must be made by the substitutionary death of a sin bearer. And there's no religion that teaches that man can't satisfy God. There are none of them that believe there isn't some way that you can satisfy God, you can approach God and, and get the thing that you need. There's only one that says that all people are sinners and they have no hope of redemption unless he is paid, unless the redemption price is paid by a perfect substitute. Now all of that's good information, I think. But it's all that I have time for tonight. These silver sockets are, are just an amazing picture of the foundation of our faith and forgiveness. We are redeemed because of the price that Christ paid. Now we'll stop here for tonight. Next time we'll go on to discover more of the meaning of silver sockets. And I might even ask you to do this. I might ask you next week to bring some silver as an offering. You can get that from Matt. Uh, he has plenty of silver coins if you need it. But if you can't get it from him, uh, you might be able to get it by going fishing. So try that if you would. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your word. 
Redemption is in Jesus Christ. He paid the price for our sins. And that is the only way that we will ever be righteous with you. We thank you, Lord, for the positive righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us. And that is an act of unmeasurable mercy and grace that you would give your son to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.